Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3. There is a great power in words that we choose to use. Let me give you an example. Let's uh, say this is being uh, reported, and this would not be an uncommon thing. Uh, let's say a, a reporter says this. On the witness stand, the congressman said he had indeed made that statement. Okay, just a very basic, forthright. The congressman said he had indeed made that statement. There's a couple other ways he could say it. On the witness stand, the congressman admitted that he had indeed made that statement. Or, on the witness stand, the congressman confessed that he had indeed made that statement. Do you see how very different those are and what kind of implications come just from changing one word in that sentence. Our words carry with them great power. And that's what James is addressing in this passage. There was an article called Medicine at Work, and it was in a pharmaceutical magazine. And it uh, was talking about the critical importance of of words that are used in the operating room, especially when someone is going under anesthesia or coming out. For instance, they said, avoid the phrase, I'm going to shoot him now. (laughs) Hook up the monitor to a drugged patient might sound like, monitor might sound like monster. And uh, my own personal experience, when I had my stent put in, they had told me to stay awake, but I was dozing off and going in and out. And I woke up to the statement, that's it, he's done. I didn't know if that was good or bad. (laughs) So our words, no question about it, carry a great deal of weight. We've always got to be careful. And and that is here what James is seeking to address. Now, uh, instead of just reading this passage all at once, we're going to work our way through it, and it will all be read before we finish today. But let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word that is truth. Your words, carefully chosen for us. And Lord, we need to hear them. But we need to hear them with more than our ears. We need to hear them with our hearts. And then by your grace and with your strength, have the ability to respond. And so we would ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, as we've talked about in terms of the book of James, uh, he is so practical. And what, what he's, we've called this series uh, a real-world faith. But what he talks about throughout the entire book is really the lordship of Christ in our life. And in particular today, he's going to talk about the lordship of Christ in that part of our life in terms of the words we use and things that we say. Now, let let me speak to you who are visiting with us today, first of all. I want you to know I'm not preaching this message because of some particular problem we are having here in the church. If I were visiting a church and I heard a pastor, uh, you know, at some point talking about gossip and this and that, I'd wonder, oh, yeah, I, I wonder if they got a big problem with that. But the reason we're addressing this is because my preferred way to preach is straight through a book of the Bible. And that's what we've been doing with the book of James. And what that does is it forces me to deal with each thing that God uh, decided to deal with when he originally gave it to these people. And let me give you a caution, and this is for all of us. And this is true in any sermon, but in particular with this sermon. I don't want you to fall for that trick that I think Satan loves to use, quite frankly, with us, of as you listen, thinking, boy, that sounds like so-and-so. I hope they're listening to this. You know, I found myself, even in preparing this, falling into that trap. Even in preaching through this yesterday. And so, it is a temptation. So here's what I want you to do. Every time you begin to think, oh, that sounds like so-and-so, or I, I hope they're here today, turn it around and say, Father, what is it you want me to hear in this? Not what is it that they need to hear, but what do I need to hear in this? Ask Him to show you how it applies to you. Now, He begins in James 3 by saying this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, again, this is one of those verses that, that I'd love to skip over because we're always looking for teachers. And And here I am about to say, yeah, but if you teach, you're going to be prone to greater judgment. And of course, it speaks to me as well. And yet, that's what God saw fit to say. It's because teachers use a lot of words. Now, in our Westminster standards, there is a a lot of it is in the form of a question-answer. And one of the questions in the, in the larger catechism is, are all sins equally heinous? Now, the temptation in answering that question, I know the first time I saw that question, I, I was immediately wanting to say, well, of course they are. Because all sin deserves death, 
It's all serious. It all offends a holy God. But the confession in answering the question, are all sins equally heinous or evil? We don't use that word heinous very often. The answer is no. All sins are not equally heinous. Why is that? Well, it lists a number of reasons based upon the Scripture why some sins are more heinous than others. Now, the bottom line is it is true. All sin deserves death, and that's what it will receive if it's not dealt with through Jesus Christ, if we are not forgiven in Him. But some sins are more heinous than others. And here's some of the reasons, and I I just picked these out because it's obvious these pertain to teachers. If a person offending has greater experience, in other words, if you're more mature, if you ought to know better, then it's more heinous. If a person is eminent for their profession or their gifts, you know, you're using your gift of teaching, for instance, and then when you fall into sin, it, it's even more serious, or serves as a guide to others, or whose example is likely to be followed. And of course, that's what a teacher ought to be able to be. In all of those cases, the confession says those are more heinous, and that agrees, really, with what James is saying here. Because of the use of more words. The teacher's use of words, it's it's like a carpenter. I know not all carpenters walk around with hammers anymore, but but, uh, you'll know what I mean. When When it comes to carpentry... Uh, Over the course of a year, uh, someone who does carpentry full-time is going to hit their hand or their thumb more often than I will. Now, that's not because I'm more skilled than them. In fact, that's not true. They're more skilled than I am. But I don't use the hammer as often, so I don't have as much opportunity for that problem, and they are using it constantly, and so there is more opportunity for it. And that's really, in essence, what James is saying about words for a teacher, because we use so many more words, uh, there is more danger there. But then he goes on, because if some of you are saying, oh good, he's he's on to the teachers today, that leaves me out because I don't like to teach. Well, James doesn't leave any of us out. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, he's saying here, it's, it's not just teachers. Everyone is susceptible. And there's only one that ever didn't stumble with their words, and that's Jesus. You know, during our early service, it struck me as we were reading the Ten Commandments how inclusive that is, but how we break all of those commandments at some point with our words, not just with actions. In fact, sometimes we don't break some of those 
with the actual action. For instance, you shall not murder. Most of us will not murder anyone in our life. And yet Jesus says, you call your brother a fool, you've murdered him. And so, that's why we are all susceptible. Now, he goes on, he gives this series of illustrations. I just want to read them through so they can have kind of the impact that they did as James gave them. He gives kind of three very different ones, but they're all saying the same thing. Just, uh, you know, some people will relate to one illustration, others to another. Uh, Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So you've got a a small bit that uh, can cause this whole big horse to go one direction or another. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Then he goes on. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Almost makes you not want to use words again, doesn't it? You see how serious this is? He's using the word hell pertaining to our use of words. That's how serious this is. We're going to see why. Because ultimately, I'll give you a hint, because our words reflect what's inside. It's not just the word themselves, but there's more to it. And then verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And here he talks about our own inability to uh, tame our tongue. He says, look, there's all these big and wild animals out there, and we can tame them, but the tongue we can't seem to tame. And, And what he's saying is he's reminding all of us of our own inability to uh, control that. As a young pastor, I had to learn that I couldn't change other people's actions. You know, I'd get frustrated. I'd see uh, somebody that ought to know better doing something, and, and, you know, I'd think, well, what can I do to fix this? And I learned very early on that I couldn't change their hearts. I couldn't change their actions. And the way I learned it was I couldn't even change my own. Only Christ, only Christ in us can change us. And so ultimately, what James is saying points us back to that, to our need for Christ. Now look at verse 9. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Now, here's, here's what he's saying here. You know, there are times when we will justify what we say to somebody else or what somebody's saying to somebody else, saying, well, they deserved it. They deserved to be talked to that way because of something they had done or because of their lifestyle or something like that. And James is saying, now wait a minute. Here's the problem with that. You know how we as believers, we uh, revel in the fact that we are made in the image of God and we ought to treat one another as image bearers of God? James says, so are they. You mustn't treat them as if they don't have a soul or as if they aren't image bearers of God. Regardless of their actions, if they are a human being, they bear the image of God. And he says, look, that shouldn't be happening among us as believers of all people. We should expect it from people that don't know God. They're not going to treat others as image bearers of God. But that ought not to be the case among us. And that's his emphasis. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan, and so you'll hear those words, but listen to what he said. The tongue, which at first was made to be an organ of God's praise, is now becoming an instrument of unrighteousness. You may kill a man in his name as well as in his person. Some loathe to take away a neighbor's goods. In other words, they, they'd never steal from their neighbor, and then they take away their good name. See, that's the power of the tongue. And, and his point as well is that ought not to be among God's people. Now, let me expand our study. We're going to come back to James. But elsewhere in Scripture, this is confirmed. And uh, I'm going to hit a number of verses quickly. Proverbs 6.19. Uh, there's a list of things the Lord hates. And one thing is a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. That's how rumors get started. H.A. Ironside uh, used to tell the story of reading in a church bulletin about a pastor who was addressing a rumor about him. And this was the rumor that was going around. It was to the effect that his wife had attended a meeting of some heretical group and that he had gone there in great indignation, dragged her out by the hair of her head, and brought her home and beat her. That's serious. If, uh, you know, that's said about anybody, but certainly about a pastor. So the pastor wanted to address it. He undertook to explain that he had not dragged his wife out of that meeting, that he had never at any time dragged her around by the hair, that he had never beaten her, and also that his wife had never attended that meeting, and finally, that he was a bachelor and never had a wife. <laughs> That's how things get out of hand. 
And yet, how many times is it just as wild a rumor that ends up stealing someone's reputation because of something that was said and they end up having to defend it? James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. See, James has been addressing how our works confirm our faith. We're not saved by our works, but if we have a true faith, our works will be fitting with it. And he's saying that's true with the tongue as well. If your tongue is out of control, then your religion is worthless. He's saying basically, it must not be there. Because people of faith aren't that way. If anyone is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. So what is the right use of the tongue? Well, Jesus uh, himself addresses in Matthew 18. He says, for instance, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Speak to him, in other words. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, that's a hard process, and nobody likes to hear that because it is hard, but it's right. And you know what? I've, I've heard far too often people say, for instance, when they hear this, well, you know, here in the South, we don't talk to people straight on that way. Some of them are honest enough to say, we're going to say it behind their back, but we don't say that straight on. Well, here's the problem. Our culture, our upbringing, must not determine who we are and our identity. And any time our culture and our upbringing comes in conflict with the Word of God, which is truth, it is the Word of God that we've got to bow to. The first pastor I ever worked with, um, it was up in Pittsburgh, and we had a number in the congregation who were uh, Irish, and some of them had come over from Ireland. Now, this is no offense against Irish, okay? But there were a number of times when he said to me, when something was going on in the church, oh, that's just the Irish way. And there were times... And it was just sin. You can't cover sin by your culture or your upbringing, ever, no matter where you're from. We are members of the kingdom of God. That is our culture. That's what must have the influence upon us. Proverbs 15, 30, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. Speaking positively. It's about the fruit of the Spirit, of self-control, of saying those things that are good and healing and not destroying. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. I came across this in a, a file of mine and uh, it's about 
carriers of bad reports. And I don't know where, where it came from. It's not original with me. So if you, if you recognize this, let me know um, where this is from. I just had it in a file because I think it's a, a, a valid thing. Here's what uh, somebody designated uh, as those who carry a bad re- report. Number one, they'll usually test your spirit before giving you the evil report. Any evidence of a compatible spirit in you will encourage him to give the report. If they think they got somebody that's receptive, boom. So if you find yourself hearing a lot of bad reports, it may be because you've sent that signal that you're receptive to that. Number two, a carrier will usually check your acceptance of his report before giving it to you. He may do this by asking for your opinion about the person or dropping a negative comment and observing your response to it. Number three, a carrier will often get you to ask for the evil report by creating curiosity. Some starters are, have you heard about, and then somebody's name or a situation. Number four, a carrier may communicate an evil report by asking for counsel or by sharing a concern for the person involved. Here's a common one. Oh, you know what? We need to pray for. And even that can be gossip cloaked in a prayer request. Number five, a carrier may use evil reports to get you to admire him or her because of being on the inside and having access to privileged information. Number six, a carrier uh, is usually one who evokes vivid details of evil, will even search them out, and God condemns that. You know, it's talking about gossip and flattery and innuendo. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you won't say to their face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you're not saying behind their back. And then innuendo. And that can be so desperate. I read about a ship's first mate who had had a drunken binge, and he was written up by the captain in the ship's log. And the captain just wrote simply, Mate drunk today. The mate, later, to get back at the captain, wrote in that same log, Captain Sober today. Do you see the innuendo? It's truth, but it's evil innuendo. So here's some questions to ask a carrier of bad reports. What's your reason for telling me this? That may stop it right there. Number two, where'd you get your information? And if they refuse to identify or if they say, well, everybody's saying it, then that may tell you it's a bad report. Number three, have you gone to those directly involved? In other words, have you approached it like a Christ follower? Number four, have you personally checked out all the facts? Number five, can I quote you if I check this out? And if they say no on those things, then they're probably carrying a bad report. Over in James 3, verse 11, says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James here is saying, what, what's inside is going to come out. Mrs. Dwight Morrow was uh, giving a high tea for J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan was Mrs. Morrow's boss. And so she wanted it to be a, a, just a, a wonderful time. But Mrs. Morrow was concerned because she had two little girls. And one of the little girls was known to just say just what was on her mind. Have you ever known a little child like that? And here's the problem. J.P. Morgan apparently had a very large nose. Now, Mrs. Morrow was just mortified that when the little girls met Mr. Morgan, that one of the little girls was going to say something about his nose and they'd all be embarrassed and and so on. So she talked to the the little girl and she said, look, he's he's got a, a large nose and he knows it and you know it and I know it. And so we don't really need to mention it today, you know, and she worked with the little child as we, we are prone to do, we who have children. And so the day came and Mrs. Morrow was just as nervous as she could be. And uh, she introduced the little girls and the little girl just curtsied, didn't say anything and walked out of the room and Mrs. Morrow was just fanning herself, but she was relieved. And she said, to Mr. Morgan. Now, Mr. Morgan, will you have cream or lemon in your nose? (laughs) You see, that's the problem. What's in here is going to come out. Jesus said it similar to James. Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. You see, it's not because we are saved by our words, but what is inside is reflected in what we say and how we speak to one another. Our speech shows our true colors. So we've got to carefully choose our words. They're a reflection of what's inside of us. And it reminds us, ultimately of our own inability and our need for the only one who didn't stumble over his words. Our need for Christ and Christ in us. That's the only way to deal with it. So I want to give you two questions as we leave here today. The first one is what has God's word said to me about my words? Now if you think this was hard to hear, I've had to live with this all week long. And I've asked myself that question again and again. What has God's word said to me about my words? And secondly, who has God prompted me to speak to? Maybe with words of repair or healing. Maybe with words of encouragement. There's somebody here today that needs your words of encouragement. May God give us those words, words of grace for someone here today. Let's pray together.